If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction and what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. Hearing dark stories in a podcast is one thing, but living in darkness is quite another. If you're living with depression and trying to deal with it using alcohol, illegal drugs, or other bad influences, please pick up the phone right now and get help. 800-831-1560. Every 12 minutes, someone dies of an overdose. Every 6 minutes, from alcohol abuse. Call 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, you can even take a leave of absence from your job and still keep it. 800-831-1560. Stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. On November 15, 1959, what became one of the most famous murders in American crime history occurred in Holcomb, Kansas, when four members of the Herbert Clutter family were brutally murdered in their home. The story of the savage crime achieved literary immortality when it was written by author Truman Capote in what remains his greatest work, In Cold Blood. The book not only chronicled the horrible murders, but shaped Capote's literary career in such a way that he gained lasting fame and was forever haunted by the story. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, fact or fiction, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you're new here, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… A high school biohacker in France claims he created a DNA sequence out of passages from the Bible and the Koran, and then he injected it into his own veins. A family discovers it may not be a good idea to purchase a home once owned by a child molester. One town legend from 1577 says a giant hellhound killed two people who were kneeling in prayer after knocking down the church doors amid a flash of lightning. We'll learn about the Black Shuck. In a remote part of northern Tanzania in Africa, there is a mysterious lake. The water is so caustic that it can burn the skin and eyes of unprepared creatures, and it can turn flesh into stone. No wonder it's been dubbed Medusa Lake. But first, we'll look at the story behind Truman Capote's best-selling novel, In Cold Blood, and how it not only terrorized the townspeople in 1959 when the murders took place, but the novel itself haunted Capote himself for the rest of his life. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. 
Truman Capote published his book In Cold Blood in 1966, and it detailed the 1959 murders of Herbert Clutter, a successful farmer from Holcomb, Kansas, his wife, and two of their four children. When Capote learned of this quadruple murder before the killers were captured, he decided to travel to Kansas and write about the crime. He was accompanied by his childhood friend and fellow author Harper Lee, and together they interviewed local residents and investigators assigned to the case and took thousands of pages of notes. The killers, Richard Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, were arrested some six weeks after the murders, and Capote ultimately spent six years working on the book. The book, one of the first non-fiction novels ever written, became the greatest crime seller at the time and is almost universally acknowledged as one of the best books of its type ever written. Herbert Clutter was a devout Methodist and a widely respected self-made man who had established a successful and very prosperous farm from modest beginnings. Morally strict and conservative, he employed as many as 18 farmhands, and former employees reportedly admired and respected him for his fair treatment and good wages. His four children, three girls and a boy, were also widely respected in the community. The elder daughters, Eviana and Beverly, had moved out of their parents' home and started their adult lives. The two younger children, Nancy, 16, and Kenyon, 15, were high school students living at home. Clutter's wife, Bonnie, a member of the local garden club, was said to have suffered from a variety of physical ailments and depression. But some have disputed these facts. Regardless, they seemed to be a relatively happy family and completely unaware that death was coming for them. The murders of the Clutters were committed by two ex-convicts on parole from the Kansas State Penitentiary. Richard Dick Hickok and Perry Edward Smith on November 15, 1959. One of their former fellow prison mates was Floyd Wells, who had worked as a farmhand for Mr. Clutter. Wells told Hickok about a safe at the farmhouse where Herb Clutter kept large amounts of cash. Hickok soon hatched the idea to commit the robbery, leave no witnesses, and start a new life in Mexico with the cash. According to Capote, Hickok described his plan as a cinch, the perfect score. Hickok later contacted Smith, his former cellmate, about committing the robbery with him. The information from Wells proved to be false, since Herb Clutter did not keep cash on hand, had no safe, and did all his business by check to keep better track of transactions. After driving across the state of Kansas on November 14, 1959, Hickok and Smith located the Clutter home and entered while the family slept. As they roused the family and discovered that there was no money to be found, Smith, notoriously unstable and prone to violent acts in fits of rage, slit Herb Clutter's throat and then shot him in the head. Kenyon, then Nancy, and then Bonnie were murdered, each by a single shotgun blast to the head. Smith claimed in his oral confession that Hickok murdered the two women. When asked to sign his confession, however, Smith refused. According to Capote, he wanted to accept responsibility for all four killings because, he said, he was sorry for Dick's mother. 
Smith added, she's a real sweet person. Hickok always maintained that Smith committed all four killings. On the basis of a tip from Wells, who contacted the prison warden after hearing of the murders, Hickok and Smith were identified as suspects and arrested in Las Vegas on December 30, 1959. They pleaded temporary insanity at the trial, but local doctors evaluated the accused and pronounced them sane. After five years on death row, Smith and Hickok were executed by hanging just after midnight on April 4, 1965, in Lansing, Kansas, at the Kansas State Penitentiary. On November 16, 1959, the New York Times published an account of the murders, which began, Holcomb, Kansas, November 15, UPI. A wealthy wheat farmer, his wife, and their two young children were found shot to death today in their home. They'd been killed by shotgun blasts at close range after being bound and gagged. There were no signs of a struggle, and nothing had been stolen. The telephone lines had been cut. The short 300-word article interested Capote enough for him to travel to Kansas to investigate the murders. Capote brought his childhood friend Harper Lee, who would later win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction for her novel To Kill a Mockingbird, to help gain the confidence of the locals. Capote did copious research for the book, ultimately compiling 8,000 pages of notes, and the criminals were found, tried, and convicted. Capote conducted personal interviews with both Smith and Hickok. Smith especially fascinated Capote. In the book, he's portrayed as the more sensitive and guilt-ridden of the two killers. The book was not completed until after Smith and Hickok were executed. Many believed that Capote held on to his manuscript until after the killers had been hanged so that they couldn't dispute anything he had written about them. Even so, both critics and witnesses alike all stated that much of the book was fabrication. Capote's defense was that it was a novel based on true facts. In the years after the book's publication, Capote was more sought after than ever. He wrote occasional brief articles for magazines, but mostly worked to entrench himself more deeply in the world of the jet set. Gore Vidal once observed, Truman Capote has tried with some success to get into a world that I have tried with some success to get out of. Capote never finished another novel after In Cold Blood. The dearth of new writing and other failures, including a rejected screenplay for Paramount's 1974 adaptation of The Great Gatsby, was counteracted by Capote's frequenting of the talk show circuit. In 1972, Capote accompanied the Rolling Stones on their 1972 American tour as a correspondent for Rolling Stone magazine. He ultimately refused to write the article, so the magazine recouped its interests by publishing, in April 1973, an interview of the author conducted by Andy Warhol. In the late 1970s, Capote was in and out of rehab clinics, and news of his various breakdowns frequently reached the public. In 1978, talk show host Stanley Siegel did an on-air interview with Capote, who, in an extraordinary intoxicated state, confessed that he might kill himself. With help from Andy Warhol, Capote underwent a facelift, lost weight, and experimented with hair transplants. But despite this, he was unable to overcome his reliance upon drugs and liquor. 
after the revocation of his driver's license and a hallucinatory seizure in 1980 that required hospitalization, Capote became fairly reclusive. These hallucinations continued unabated and medical scans eventually revealed that his brain mass had perceptibly shrunk. On the rare occasions when he was lucid, he was still able to write. In 1982, a new short story, One Christmas, appeared in the December issue of Ladies' Home Journal, and the following year it became, like its predecessors, A Christmas Memory and The Thanksgiving Visitor, a holiday gift book. In 1983, Remembering Tennessee, an essay in tribute to Tennessee Williams, who had died in February of that year, appeared in Playboy magazine. Capote died in Los Angeles on August 25, 1984, age 59, from liver cancer. According to the coroner's report, the cause of death was liver disease complicated by phlebitis and multiple drug intoxication. He died at the home of his old friend, Joanne Carson, ex-wife of late-night TV host Johnny Carson, on whose program Capote had been a frequent guest. He was interred in the Western Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles, leaving behind his longtime companion, author Jack Dunphy. After his death, fellow writer Gore Vidal described Capote's demise as a good career move. Up next, a high school biohacker in France claims he created a DNA sequence out of passages from the Bible and the Koran, and then he injected it into his own veins. A family discovers it might not be a good idea to purchase a home once owned by a child molester. And one town legend from 1577 says a giant hellhound killed two people who were kneeling in prayer. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. To what lengths will someone go in order to survive? Does the survival instinct override their conscience and allow them to commit not only murder, but also the taboo act of cannibalism? What happens when a person crosses the line from dark fantasy to real-life acts of brutal rape, murder, and cannibalism? Are these people driven by a desire so insatiable that they're incapable of controlling it? Murderous Minds Volume 3, Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escape the Headlines, is the latest offering in a series that takes you inside the lives of killers who committed cold-blooded murder for a glimpse at events that drove them to kill. Authored within a historical context, each chapter is an unbelievable venture inside the dark and twisted world of real cannibal killers whose names and crimes might not be familiar to you. By weaving a tale in which dark fantasies become reality, this audiobook invites you to see life from a perspective few ever witness, from that of the killer. Along with a historical look at cannibalism through the ages, these stories beg the listener to answer the question, was the murderer committing cannibalism because he was incapable of resisting the urge to kill and consume, or is the explanation simply pure evil? Murderous Minds, Volume 3, written by Ryan Becker and Curtis Giles Vasey, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com.
There are some stories that just scream, wait, what? This is one of those stories. A high school biohacker in France claims he created a DNA sequence out of passages from the Bible and the Quran, converted them into previously unknown proteins, and injected himself with them. Did he break any commandments? Since it is possible to convert digital information into DNA, I wondered whether it would be possible to convert a religious text into DNA and to inject it in a living being, the student said. It is the first time that someone injects himself with macromolecules developed from a text. It is very symbolic, even if it does not have much interest. Not much interest? Adrian Locatelli has the Internet's attention with his self-published paper on what has to be the most creative, if not dangerous, experiment of 2018. DNA code is represented by a linear, non-overlapping sequence of the nitrogenous bases adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. The four letters, A, G, C, T, are used to create three-letter words strung together to represent a single amino acid in a polypeptide chain. Locatelli claims he created a new DNA sequence using letters he got from the Bible and the Quran. How? He started at the beginning. Genesis. Locatelli claims he replaced every character in the Hebrew book of Genesis with a word using the characters A-G-C-T. There are 64 possible combinations. He says he left out Genesis chapter 2 verses 10 through 14, chapter 5, and chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 because they were controversial. Genesis 2 verses 10 through 14 mentions the unknown rivers Pishon and Gihon, Genesis 5's family tree from Adam to Noah, and Genesis 7 verses 1 through 5 is the story of Noah building an ark. Locatelli then did the same thing with the Arabic letters from the 13th chapter from the Quran, the Surah Arad. With his new DNA sequence, Locatelli says he used a home gene engineering kit to edit the DNA provided into the new proteins. It's not clear if he created two or one, then injects the proteins into his own legs. And the results? Did he see God? Adam? Noah? Quote, the subcutaneous injection of the vector VB180513-1026KBP in my left thigh only caused at the injection site a minor inflammation, which persisted a few days, and the subcutaneous injection of the peptide RS27-12-16 in my right thigh provoked nothing. Despite that, even with the religious overtones, Experts and internet commentators give Locatelli's strange experiment a big, kids for God's sakes, don't try this at home. Did he take a huge risk? Definitely. Did he break any commandments by taking God's name in vain, V-E-I-N? Uh, probably not. Hopefully that pun doesn't break any commandments either. So did he break any laws of nature? Well, he's still here. Will he win the award for the dumbest thing anybody did in 2018? He's definitely in the running. In 1986, 
My parents purchased and moved into a house. It was an older home and had been inhabited before. I've heard that during the 1970s it was owned by the boys' basketball coach from the local high school. Supposedly, he was a child molester and was fired for making advances toward his team members. This is unsubstantiated, though. I was born in 1988. During my childhood, I experienced a variety of troubling phenomena and was very, well, troubled as a result. I constantly felt as if I was being watched, followed, and having my thoughts read. I also felt that something was listening to me while I spoke. As a result, I was always afraid and could never be left alone. I was always running up and down stairs, looking behind me and looking over my shoulder. There was also visual and auditory phenomena. Often out of the corner of my eye, I saw shadow figures darting through rooms and then disappearing. One night, in the summer of 1998, I heard guttural laughter emanating from the corner of my room. It seemed to echo and multiply itself before eventually fading and ending. In early 2003, I heard a few, two or three, tortured-sounding voices calling my name, again in the far corner of my bedroom. The phenomenon was the most intense in the upstairs and in the back room of the basement. It seemed to decline and eventually end as I entered puberty. At the time, both my parents were staunch evangelical Christians who believed firmly in the existence of spirits. Oddly enough, however, my father did not take me seriously and dismissed it as a form of separation anxiety. As a result, he took no action on my behalf. In hindsight, I should have been taken to a therapist to determine if this was simply a product of my mind and, if so, why was my mind producing it. If it was not, they should have consulted a religious official to have the house examined and, if need be, cleansed. Alas, my father did neither. In fact, it didn't even occur to him to do either and lived in torment as a result. His lame band-aid solution was to stay up with me until I fell asleep. I was discussing this with my mother recently, and what she said surprised me. She conceded to me that she too had experienced exactly the same phenomena. However, she began to feel it when they first moved, 1986, and for her it lasted until we moved, early 2004, basically the entire time she lived in the house. She even discussed it with my father. For his part, he maintains he never experienced anything out of the ordinary there himself, except for a vague sensation of darkness once in the back of the basement. This has left me with nothing but questions. Was there a connection between the activities of the previous inhabitant and what I experienced? Why, despite my parents' religious faith, were the entities capable of entering our home and afflicting us? Why did my mother and I experience it but not my father? Why was my father so passive and complacent in dealing with it? He takes the form of a huge black dog and prowls along dark lanes and lonesome field footpaths where, although his howling makes the hearer's blood run cold, his footfalls make no sound. 
People in Bungay, England know all too well what the Black Shuck can do. One town legend from 1577 says this giant hellhound knocked down the church doors amid a flash of lightning and killed two people who were kneeling in prayer. The ghostly apparition then traveled 12 miles away to Blytheburg Church, the stories say, where it killed two more people. Clearly, Cujo and the rest of the world's most fearsome canines have nothing on the mythical Black Shuck. The first known written text describing a Black Shuck from the Old English Skaka or Devil in England goes back to 1127 in the town of Peterborough. Immediately after the arrival of Abbot Henry of Poito of the Abbey of Peterborough, there was quite a ruckus. It was the Sunday when they sing Exerge Quare. Many men both saw and heard a great number of huntsmen hunting. The huntsmen were black, huge and hideous, and rode on black horses and on black he-goats, and their hounds were jet black with eyes like saucers and horrible. This was seen in the very dear park of the town of Peterborough and in all the woods that stretch from that same town to Stamford, and in the night the monks heard them sounding and winding their horns. Witnesses said that about 20 to 30 of these hellish beings stayed in the area through Lent all the way to Easter, a period of about 50 days. The events of 1127 are known as the Wild Hunt. It's not just an English phenomenon. Stories from across Central, Western, and Northern Europe recount loud, wild hunts throughout untamed lands, and they help explain the mythological underpinnings of the Black Shuck. Northern cultures associated with wild hunts with the change of the seasons from fall into winter, probably because strong, cold winds came blowing over the landscape and forced people indoors. Anyone who didn't make it inside during the winter could freeze to death. Interpreting howling winds as a pack of hunters would thus make sense. People were mythologizing their surroundings as a way to warn people to stay indoors. Winds aren't nearly as scary as a pack of rabid dogs on the hunt, but the outcome could be the same. If someone didn't flee from the black shuck, they could be killed. Particularly in England, when winds would come howling in from the sea, there were stories of black hellhounds in more than a dozen areas. These include Suffolk, Norfolk, East Anglia, Cambridge, Lancashire, Yorkshire, Staffordshire, Lincolnshire, and Leicestershire. Anyone who saw a black shuck described a large dog with black, mangy fur. These dogs would supposedly be larger than normal, with some even as big as a horse. They were foaming at the mouth as if deranged, rabid, or ravenously focused on hunting for their next meal. According to one description published in 1901, it said, He takes the form of a huge black dog and prowls along dark lanes and lonesome field footpaths, where, although his howling makes the hearer's blood run cold, his footfalls make no sound. But such an encounter might bring you the worst of luck. It is even said that to meet him is to be warned that your death will occur before the end of the year, 
so you will do well to shut your eyes if you hear him howling. Shut them even if you are uncertain whether it is the dog fiend or the voice of the wind you hear. You may perhaps doubt his existence, and, like other learned folks, tell us that his story is nothing but the old Scandinavian myth of the Black Hound of Odin, brought to us by the Vikings. And in addition to that, perhaps the most distinctive characteristic of the Black Shuck was its eyes, red and big as saucers. Furthermore, these hellhounds were always said to appear suddenly and without warning, then disappear as quickly as they had arrived. And if you did catch a glimpse of one, it was believed to either be a protective spirit or a portent of death, a family guardian watching over everyone or warning of certain doom. No wonder people feared the Black Shuck. Of course, the Black Shuck was scary because of more than just its appearance. Stories of the creature in action reveal the true depths of its terror. In the most famous story of a Black Shuck appearance, Reverend Abraham Fleming of Bungay, modern-day Suffolk, wrote a terrifying account of a hellhound's attack on the church in 1577 in his essay, A Strange and Terrible Wonder. This black dog, or the devil in such a lenacy, God he knoweth all who worketh all, running all along down the body of the church with great swiftness and incredible haste among the people in a visible form and shape, passed between two persons as they were kneeling upon their knees, and occupied in prayer as it seemed, wrung the necks of them both at one instant clean backward, in so much that even at a moment where they kneeled they strangely died. As for accounts of more recent Black Shuck sightings, one man in 1905 claimed that a black dog turned into a donkey and then vanished a few heartbeats later. One four-year-old girl during World War II encountered a large black dog that walked from her window around her bed, made eye contact with those famous red eyes, and then vanished before reaching the door. She didn't sleep well that night. A 10-year-old boy wrote in 1974 about an encounter he had when he was six. He said he saw a black animal with yellow eyes galloping towards him at night. After he screamed for his mother, she said it was merely a reflection of the car's headlights from outside his window. The boy read a story about a haunted council house and a black dog spirit, and he then became convinced that his original account of a giant black dog was, in fact, the truth. In actuality, sightings of hellhounds or other demonic figures and acts are often inspired by fearsome weather phenomena. For example, the sightings in Bungay are often attributed to massive thunderstorms that caused buildings to collapse. Lightning strikes might burn wooden structures, or at least cause a few stones to fall from stone churches, which could be seen as the devil's work. During the Black Shuck sighting in Blytheburg in 1577, the steeple at Holy Trinity Church collapsed one night in a terrible storm. There were also scorch marks left on the north door, which are still there today. Rather than take the storm simply as a storm, some saw the destruction and resulting deaths of two people as the work of the devil. As for the devil's work, 
Some believe that the reported black shuck sighting surrounding the steel collapse in Blytheburg spread so much and stuck in people's minds because of the Reformation that was sweeping through Europe at the time. The Catholic Church may have been trying to scare people into staying with their church. Additionally, stories of scary black dogs could have also spread as a way to teach lessons. Parents may have used stories of the black shuck to keep kids out of certain rooms in a house or to stay away from strange dogs, for example. News of a giant dog skeleton unearthed near an abbey in Leiston, south of Bungay in Suffolk, in 2013 gave the legend of the black shuck new life in the present day. Nevertheless, experts believe it was a Great Dane, one of the largest dog breeds in the world. And in the end, perhaps that's all a black shuck ever really was, just a massive dog. Irish wolfhounds, St. Bernards, Mastiffs, Newfoundlands, and Great Peonies are just a few of the dogs that grow to enormous sizes, big enough to inspire exaggerated myths about hellhounds the size of horses. Myths that survive for hundreds of years. When Weird Darkness returns, in a remote part of northern Tanzania in Africa, there is a mysterious lake. The water is so caustic that it can burn the skin and eyes of unprepared creatures, and it can turn flesh into stone. That story is up next. Well, it's the new year, and that means New Year's resolutions, right? So what's your New Year's resolution? To lose weight? To exercise more? Maybe to give up a habit? Well, doing any of those things is going to be a lot easier if you have a good night's sleep first. And now's the perfect time if you've not already tried a MyPillow, because right now you can get two premium and two go-anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. Now, if you've been a weirdo for any length of time, you know I do not promote anything here unless I believe in it myself. I'm already using a MyPillow. I've got one of their seat cushions, which helped me immensely with some back issues I was having uh, in the office. And I also have one of their Go Anywhere pillows, which also helps out with the back problems. And I use it in the family room on my recliner, just lounging around. And now, in the mail, on its way, is a mattress topper for me. I, I just want to try it. But now is the perfect time to try my pillow. Get two premium my pillows and two Go Anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. All you have to do is visit MyPillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Click on the four-pack special when you're there. MyPillow.com, click on the four-pack special, and then use the promo code WEIRD. Or you can call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192. Ask for the four-pack special and use the promo code WEIRD for free shipping. The shores of this lake in Tanzania, in Africa, is littered with the corpses of birds who perished by crashing into the lake. When the birds wash up onto the shore, their lifeless bodies appear to have been turned to stone. Welcome to Lake Natron. 
Lake Natron is a salt lake, meaning that it has no outlet for the water to exit the lake other than evaporation. It also has extremely high alkalinity. The nature of the lake comes from a chemical called natron, which is a mixture of sodium carbonate and baking soda. The substance enters the lake through material eroding from the surrounding hills. The natron content in the lake has given it a pH level of about 10.5, which is comparable to that of ammonia. The alkalinity of the lake is what gives the body of water its unusual properties. It can very easily chemically burn animals not adapted to the sodium carbonate-rich conditions. The waters can also reach temperatures as high as 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Despite this hostile environment, the lake is not lifeless. It appears to contain a stable ecosystem consisting of a population of flamingos, at least one species of fish, and algae. These organisms may be descendants of animals who lived on the lake many years ago before its current chemical environment arose. They may represent the only survivors who were able to successfully adapt as the lake acquired its unique hostile characteristics. The shores of this lake are covered with thousands of intact petrified bird corpses that have washed ashore. The birds appear to have been preserved almost perfectly, feathers and all. They are so lifelike that a photographer who explored the lake in 2011, Nick Brandt, started putting the birds in lifelike poses and taking pictures of them. It's not entirely clear how the birds die. One theory that has been suggested by Brandt is that as the birds fly over the mirror-like surface of the chemically saturated lake, they become confused and think they are flying over empty space. This could lead them to accidentally crash into the lake. This is similar to the reason that birds tend to fly into glass doors and car windows. The birds also do not petrify instantly on contact with the water. This is made clear by the population of flamingos, let alone the fish that live in contact with the lake without being petrified. The petrification does, however, appear to happen very quickly. Lake Natron is remarkably interesting to scientists because organisms do thrive in this extremely hostile environment. There are, however, concerns about the lake's preservation. Currently, there is no legislation to protect the lake and its unique ecology. There are also proposals to build a hydroelectric power plant on the main source river for the lake. This could impact the survival of the local flamingo population. Lake Natron is an eerie place because it is a lake where animals appear to turn to stone. Is it possible that places like Lake Natron could be part of the basis for petrification legends around the world? In many cultures, there are legends of people and animals being turned to stone, often from contact with an accursed thing or as a form of punishment. A famous Greek example is Medusa a creature whose appearance was so hideous that all who looked upon her turned to stone. In a later medieval legend, it is said that St. Hilda of Whitby was empowered by God to turn a horde of snakes threatening her to stone. They coiled up and their heads fell off. It's said that the miraculously petrified corpses of the snakes can still be found on the shores of Whitby. 
A nearby monastery was also built in honor of the legendary event. What is interesting about this story is that the stones Whitby locals believed for centuries to be the corpses of the snakes are, in reality, ammonite fossils. Ammonites were shelled organisms that lived in Cretaceous oceans. The legend appears to have been at least partially inspired by ancient people discovering an ammonite fossil and not knowing how to identify it. If it was well-preserved enough so that it still resembled an actual animal, believing that it had been a living creature, unfortunate enough to be magically petrified, would be a logical guess to someone with pre-scientific worldviews. This possibility is reinforced by the fact that other ammonite-rich beaches, besides Whitby, such as those in Somerset, England, also have their own versions of the legend, where snakes are turned to stone. If legends of animals and people being turned to stone can be inspired by the discovery of fossils, it does not seem unlikely, then, that similar legends could also arise from ancient travelers encountering alkaline bodies of water that produce petrified corpses. In discovering a graveyard that turns birds and other animals to stone, we may have also stumbled upon the real lair of Medusa. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction, you can share your story with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Patrons giving $5 per month or more become official weirdos and get commercial-free versions of every Weird Darkness episode I post. Patrons at the $10 per month level or higher get more exclusive content such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them, often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. You can see what I'm currently narrating and see all of the giving levels on the Become a Patron page at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find Weird Darkness on Facebook and Twitter, listen to my daily dose of weird news, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And if you like the show, please help me spread the word about it. If you consider yourself a real weirdo, tell your friends, co-workers, and family about Weird Darkness and why you like it. You could post a link directly to this episode on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, any other social media that you use with a quick note about what you heard in the episode and why somebody should give it a listen text or email your contacts about the show. A recommendation from a loved one or a friend to listen to a podcast that's a lot more powerful than you could possibly know. And the more listeners I have, well, the more I can pour right back into this podcast to make it better for you. And while you're listening to the podcast, take a moment, leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Diksha25 in India says, Hooked. I am a big fan. I now enjoy all chores because I have your podcast to keep me going. Thank you for keeping it up. It's perfect. Your voice and the fact that you do a whole podcast a day. Fantastic. Keep it up. Love from India. Deeksha, an official weirdo. Maniac Mindy left an Apple podcast review saying, Love, love, love. I happened to stumble across this podcast by accident, and I seriously love it so much. 
I go back and listen to old episodes I've missed just so I can listen all the time. The delivery is always spot on and just brings the stories right to life. Awesome job and thanks for the hard work bringing it to us. And then 120J left a review in Apple Podcasts saying, Great podcast and host. This was one of the first podcasts I stumbled upon and I've been listening ever since. The stories are creepy and the host has a soothing voice. Great job. If you'd like to drop me an email, you can do that at darren at weirddarkness.com. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links to the stories in the show notes. In Cold Blood, The Clutter Murders was written by Troy Taylor. God's DNA was written by Paul Seaburn. Childhood Tormentors was written by Illuminati322. Black Shuck was written by William DeLong and Medusa Lake was written by Caleb Strong. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And a final thought. When going through a tough time, Remind yourself that it won't last forever. You will overcome it. You'll become a better person. You'll live a better life, and your story will someday inspire and help others. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorans Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorans Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday, I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362 Have you heard about the hemp oil explosion? It's exploding for good reason. It's beneficial in a wide range of applications, including health, anti-aging, nutrition, pain relief, hair growth as a vitamin supplement, energy and focus, stress relief, better sleep, it's even useful for the furry family members in your home. And even better, it's all natural. I'm currently using a hemp oral spray as an appetite suppressant, and it's helped me immensely to keep the late-night junk food cravings at bay. If you want to check it out for yourself, look for CTFO on the sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com. From the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Learn more about gig-speed internet or other popular plans. 
With Xfinity, you'll enjoy faster downloads and a better streaming experience. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.